Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on October 17th by Pastor Rod Heppel. Today is the fifth sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Welcome here today. I don't know if you're a regular of Sardis Fellowship, or maybe you're a recent attender online, or maybe you're a guest and it's your first time joining us, but I want to say I'm glad you're here and keep coming back. And if you are new and you want to check out Sardis Fellowship, we invite you to go to sardisfellowship.com and go on our website and kind of get to know us a little bit. You will see that we are a people of God called out by faith in Jesus Christ to serve the Lord. And part of serving the Lord and part of loving the Lord our God with all our heart is loving people to Jesus. And we want you to find Jesus. And so if you're a guest with us today, I invite you back here so that you too can meet Jesus and have that life transforming experience that we've had in coming to faith in him. Now we're midway through a sermon series in the first part of Acts. Um, we're working our way through Acts slowly, but we're going to just take 10 weeks here before Christmas. We've titled this, And You Will Be My Witnesses. Luke, who's the author of Acts, is a follower of Jesus, and he's intentional about writing this account to a guy that he knows named Theophilus. He was a Roman um, governor of some type, a Roman official, and this guy may be a believer, may not yet, but Luke is wanting to make an accurate account of the things that he has heard and seen and investigated giving convincing proofs to this official that he might know the things that he's been taught are true. And probably predominantly the main thing that he wants this official to know that is true is that Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. And so the part of the story that we've been looking at so far is just after the resurrection of Christ, just after his ascension into heaven, and it's all about what he is doing through his apostles as the early church gets started. A key event that has taken place so far is the coming of the Holy Spirit that God has sent this promised gift, his very presence in the Holy Spirit to come and indwell those early believers. And then miraculous things are happening, miracles and people getting saved in great numbers and God's working in mighty ways. And it's all about God's action. So the, the acts of the apostles is really about God's action in the life of the early church to establish that new work. Now, you might wonder, well, what is the church? We know the church is not a building. We often refer to it like that, but the church are the people. And the church is made up of two distinct groups here in the early church, the Jewish people and everyone else, uh, non-Jewish people, all nations. And so the idea is that God has brought together one new community of people who have put their faith in Jesus. They've been united now into one group called the church. And that's having a ripple effect throughout the Jewish religious community. So here we are today in chapter 5 where we're going to look at a story which is another example of this rippling effect that's going on uh, by the gospel message. So I've just given you a thumbnail sketch of where we've been. Now today we're going to look again at a story of how God is moving and acting in miraculous ways. Now Luke starts off our section today in Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through to chapter uh, verse 42. And he starts off the section by giving a summary statement. This is actually his third summary statement. He's given one at the end of Acts 2. He's given one at the end of Acts 4. And now he gives another one um, in uh, Acts uh, 5 here. And what he's saying here in this summary is kind of uh, what God has been doing through the apostles. So verse 12 is kind of key. It says that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all all those who believed or all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. 
So what's happening here in this summary statement is Luke is just simply saying that God is doing amazing things. And uh, it has some similar aspects to other summaries. It talks about these miracles being performed. It talks about the people meeting together like they were having like camp every day. You know, they're, they're coming together and people are getting saved and they're encouraging each other and they're hearing the teaching from the apostles and God keeps adding to their number. And so that's kind of the summary. But in this summary, we're going to read that there's some unusual things that are taking place that are a little hard for us to understand at times. And verse 15 says, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Okay, that's a little unusual. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. You know, so in our Western culture, we downplay things like, you know, the tormenting impure spirits that are being exercised from these people and people being set free. We downplay that kind of activity of the evil one or the evil spirits because we think somehow we've got something figured out. But you know, when I listen to the news, as I was just today again, and I hear about 150 people every month in our province that are dying from drug overdose, don't we ever stop to wonder, well, who's behind that? I mean, I couldn't think of anything more in line with Satan's plan and demonic activity than that. I mean, he is the one who is the thief who has come to kill and steal and destroy. There is a spiritual battle that is raging on behind all of these kind of physical realm activities that we see. And we need to realize that the devil is alive and he is active in our world today. And maybe you haven't believed that, but I want you to consider it. I want you to think about the fact that he is called the liar, the deceiver, and that he deflects the idea of him being active in this world through these other more physical kind of answers that we give. But 1 Peter 5 just puts it straight out there like this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. I don't have a, uh, I, I don't have to convince some of you of this truth because you know it very well. You're engaged in the struggle and uh, you know what that spiritual battle looks like, but you also know what the victory is in Jesus Christ. As for this other part in this verse that seems a little unusual and of interest to us is Peter's shadow. What do we make of his shadow healing people? Or at least it seems inferred in this passage, that his shadow healed people. Um, we can't quite wrap our heads around what that was or why it would happen like that. It's not the only time, actually, in Scripture that we see an unusual thing happen that was used of God for healing. Uh, here's another one that Luke gives in Acts 19 about the Apostle Paul. Uh, it says that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illness illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And you know, if we were to look at the healings of Jesus that are recorded in the gospel, uh, in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we will see that even there's one story of a woman who touches the hem of uh, Jesus' garment and she's healed. And then there's another time where he takes, um, he makes mud out of his spit and applies it on a blind man's eyes and the guy sees. And so we see these unusual things. So what do we make of it? Here's what we make of it. It's that God is doing it and God gets the glory from it. And we don't want to lose sight of that overall good news message that God is doing unusual things and that he's uh, healing people, uh, even through these unusual means. Now, one caution here is not to take this as a prescription, that this is exactly the way that healing should be done today. I don't think that those TV programs that are encouraging you to send your money into them because they have a blessed 
piece of handkerchief that they will then mail to you for some kind of blessing on your home. I do not believe that that is the point that Luke is making here. Uh, the point that he's making here is that God has the power to heal and he's doing it at this time in a supernatural way in the life of the church because he's trying to establish the church. So I don't recommend giving your money away like that. If you want to go deeper in your understanding of healing, you can, of course. Uh, today's message is not on that, but last week or two weeks ago, Pastor Tim did preach on that. And so if you were to go back two weeks ago, you would see a very good uh, in-depth understanding of healing that Pastor Tim was talking about. So go listen to that one. Now from this summary that we have here in these four verses or five verses um, about the apostles, Luke takes us into, from that into another incredible story. I, I love the stories of Acts. I told you at the beginning that I love Acts because of the narrative, because of all these stories of what God is doing and it just makes you go, wow, this is amazing. And so there's a similarity between Acts chapter 5 in this story and the one that we read two weeks ago in Acts chapter 4 about the healing of this man. And here are the similarities that I want you to note from those stories. First of all, that there's a resistance to the miraculous event by the religious leaders. The apostles are arrested and thrown in jail. Um, they get out of jail, and then they go and they stand before the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders. They get told the same message, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And yet they give the same response back. We must obey God rather than human authorities. And finally, they're released. Those are the similarities. But there's also a couple of differences in this story today. And that is this, that the release of the disciples happened quite differently. It was through a supernatural means of an angel. And the second difference in this story is that there's this Pharisee, Gamaliel, who stands up and he actually um, saves the lives of the apostles. So that's not also in chapter 4 story. But the important thing that I want you to see in this is that there's a building effect of the resistance of the religious leaders. It's escalating, and in a couple chapters we're going to see that it escalates to the point of the stoning to death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So I'm going to read for us this story today, and I want you to look for two things, these two things, the emphasis on the teaching of the apostles and who it is that they're teaching about, like the nature of who Jesus is. So... Let's read Acts chapter 5 together. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, which is the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in <clears throat> and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. 
the God of our ancestors, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thadus appeared, uh, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering grace, disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I love this story. I just love the fact that it is a wild, crazy story. It's even humorous at certain parts. If you think, you could imagine these soldiers standing outside this guarded jail cell and there's no one inside when they open the gates. And then when the announcement comes from the guy, he says, look, the same guys that you'd put in jail the day before, there they are in the temple courts. They're just down there preaching away to the people. Just imagine how infuriating that would have been for those religious leaders to have to go to the very spot where they had rested them the day before and bring them back into to their council. And can't you picture the captain and, and his guards as they go down there? I mean, these are the guards. These are the ones that rule. And they're a little bit scared to take these apostles because of the crowds. Uh, because people are, are listening and following these apostles. So I just love these elements of the story. Because for me, it makes it so believable. I mean, people are acting exactly the way I would think that they would respond to all these various layers of, of frustration or misunderstanding or not knowing what's going on. They're just reacting like the way we would. And, and what gives me confidence here is that you have Luke, a medical doctor, a person who is carefully investigating these things, giving this account. And, you know, he's doing it on purpose because he wants Theophilus to know that it's true, that he could have certainty about the things that he's been told. And, and here Luke is giving the kind of detail about things that maybe you think he might want to leave out. I mean, like if you're trying to prove your point, or you're trying to make a theological treaty or argument, and there's some bizarre or unusual thing that takes place, you might be tempted to leave it out because it doesn't sound as sophisticated or logical. But what we see here is that upon careful investigation, Luke has to include it because it's true. And upon including it, and he gives all the responses and reactions of the people in the story, you go, yeah, actually that makes sense. If I was one of those religious leaders, I'd be pretty fired up and mad too. If I was one of those guards, I'd probably be perplexed over the fact that it was an empty cell. And I might actually be a little bit more like ushering these apostles back to the council instead of just grabbing them and, you know, taking them by force. So I think that just speaks to the nature of the fact that Luke has no way of explaining these miraculous and supernatural events other than the fact that upon careful investigation, they're true. 
and it rings true for me. I hope it does for you. Now, I wanted you to note those references to the apostles and to the fact that they're teaching about Jesus and who he is. Everything that is causing this tension is about Jesus. Uh, the fact that they're teaching about his death and his resurrection and that he's the Lord. So if we look at verse 20, the, the apostles are telling the people about the new life. If we look at verse 21, they began to teach the people. Verse 25, when they say, look, the men that, that you put in jail are standing in the temple courts and they're teaching the people. It's teaching, teaching, teaching. They gave them strict orders not to teach in his name. The God of our ancestors raised who? Jesus from the dead. And God exalted him, who? Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and as savior. We are witnesses to these things, the disciples say in verse 30. And then in verse 40, again, they're ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. In verse 41, they rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Whose name? Jesus. So time and time and time again, and I think verse 42 really sums it all up when it says they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It was for that that they were almost killed. In fact, eventually, they would die for that truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, we might wonder today, well, what's the big deal about them preaching this message? And I get it because we live 2,000 years later, and I get it that we're not first century Jewish people. So we might not understand the full implications of what is the big deal. I don't know if you remember this uh, cartoon character, uh, Bugs Bunny, with the Martian when Bugs says to him, what's the... What's all the hubbub bub, he says to him. And the Martian's getting ready to smack his mallet against this uh, bomb that he wants to detonate. And Bugs Bunny is just casually sitting there chomping away on his little carrot. And he says, what's all the hubbub bub? And we might wonder that about this situation with these first century Jewish leaders. Like, what's all the hubbub? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here that's creating all this fuss. It's that they're mad that the disciples are teaching something they don't agree with, number one. And number two, they're mad that the disciples are leading people, uh, and they're not. Like, people are listening to the disciples, the apostles. Now, this passage gives us some clues about this very thing. I mean, they've told them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And then it says in the text that you're filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and by implication, you're making us sound like we are the ones who are guilty for this man's blood, which they were. And in verse 17, it just comes right out and says that the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So you see that they, they are resistant to the message about Jesus being the Messiah. And they're very jealous about the popularity of these apostles. So much so that in verse 33, it says it like this. When they, the religious leaders, heard his, this which was his death and resurrection and being seated at the right hand of the Father and the Prince and the Savior. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them, the apostles, to death. So that's what it's led to. Why? Well, they're just extremely mad about those two points. They themselves have denied Jesus as the Messiah. They disagree with this message. They're jealous about this authority. So you have to kind of picture it through their eyes. Picture first century Judaism with the temple, the very center of religious belief and teaching and leadership. And they were the ones who were those teachers and leaders of the Jewish faith. They were the ones who should be central in the temple giving this teaching. But what's happening here? What's happening here is that they've been supplanted. 
Now the authority of God has been placed on these outsiders. These aren't people that are part of the religious systems that they have in place. They're not a Sadducee. They're not a Pharisee. They're not part of the Sanhedrin. They're not elders. They're not priests. Where are these people? They are the ones who were the followers of Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah, who by the coming of the Holy Spirit have now been empowered to be the ones to lead Israel back to that restoration. Back to that repentance of their sins for the forgiveness of their sins that they might be made right with God and that through Israel the gospel would go out to all nations. So what's all the hubbub? It's that their authority has been replaced by that of the apostles. The apostles have the approval of God and they are now the ones leading Israel back into that right relationship. Now verse 42 says that they're completely committed to this. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house they never stop doing what? Teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. But you know, we might stop and wonder here for a moment, like, why is this called good news if those people aren't accepting it? And you know, we have to ask the question, what does it mean that Jesus was the Messiah, and why was it good news? So let's, let's go there, and let's understand a little bit about this language, because uh, it might be a bit foreign to you. So the word Messiah is our English uh, way of saying it, but it comes from the Hebrew. And it is the exact same uh, word in Greek when they say Christ. So if you hear Christ or you hear Messiah, it means the exact same thing, which is anointed one. So don't get confused by those two terms. Uh, They mean the same thing. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. In the Old Testament, when there was an anointing, it was a symbolic... um, It was a symbolic event of God's chosenness of that person to be a priest or a king or a prophet. And so we see that in the Old Testament practice. In this particular case, what the big issue is here is that the apostles are proclaiming that Jesus is the anointed one of God to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. And the leaders disagree with that. They have a different reference point of who they think the Messiah is going to be. Now, today, we refer to Jesus often as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And what you have there is that uh, Jesus is his name that was given to him, and it means Savior. And then Christ is not his last name, as some people might mistakenly think that, well, his first name's Jesus, his last name is Christ. It's not. It's his title. It's his title of his lordship, that he's the anointed one, that he's the Messiah. So, Jesus Christ is is our Lord and Savior. It's just a a re-emphasizing of his name. The Jews at this time were waiting for a Messiah. They'd been waiting a long time for a Messiah. In fact, it goes all the way back in their Jewish scriptures to Genesis 3.15, which I don't expect you necessarily to know off the top of your head. Some of you might. But that's in the garden scene where there's the curse that God is placing on the serpent. And he says this at that time. He says that the offspring of the woman would be struck by the serpent. It would be a strike to the heel of the offspring of the woman, which is a reference to the Messiah. And then it says, though, that the the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent or strike back, but it would be a strike to the head. Of course, a strike to the heel isn't as devastating as a strike to the head. So the idea is one is going to be wounded, the other is going to be killed or crushed or destroyed. And that's exactly what the cross did. So even from the earliest reference about who this Messiah would be, the apostles are seeing this complete fulfillment of that in Jesus at the cross. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross and he was there, dead, three days, in a tomb, Satan thinking to himself, I've struck a blow, a death blow, right? But it wasn't. 
Because three days later, when Jesus comes to life again, he's the one who has now conquered death and sin and Satan himself. And so that's the crushing blow to the head of the enemy, Satan. So what we see here is that Jesus is the Messiah who has conquered our greatest enemy, sin and death. It's this message and this good news and this Messiah that has done it. Done it. Not, not some other Messiah in some other way. It's Jesus. But for them, Jesus didn't fit the bill. They, they, they had something else in mind. And generally speaking, they had some kind of a conquering Messiah who would bring about a new golden age of reigning of Israel like there once was when King David and Solomon were on the throne and Israel defeated their enemies and they had this prominence amongst the nations. They had more that kind of an idea that their oppressor would be thrown off when the Messiah, their Savior, would come. A rabbi from Galilee was not what they had in mind, let alone one that would go to a cross and die. They could not reconcile that with the picture that they had in their mind. Well, nor could the apostles, quite frankly. They, when Jesus was dead on the cross, uh, they were deserted, right? They just fled. They just went back fishing. But it wasn't until Jesus had proven to them that he was alive, that they believed. And, and once they believed, they couldn't deny it. In fact, Verse 32 says, we are witnesses of these things. Meaning that this isn't something that we can just choose to not believe. We can't deny what we know to be true. And that's why day after day, they're preaching this message about Jesus being the Messiah. Because he did fit the bill. They missed all of the other passages of scripture in the Old Testament, which talked about the priestly duties and the suffering Messiah. They missed that because they wanted to see the reigning king. The irony that I see here is that we have these religious leaders who missed the bigger picture that God had in mind. They, they missed their very own salvation in this. So that in denying the Messiah, they've denied the greater glorious salvation, which would have been for themselves, but also would have been for the nations. They couldn't picture that. And so they deny Christ. They, in denying Christ, have denied that the world would be blessed through Christ. They could only see their own careers and their own country and really their own economy. They missed the Messiah who suffered and died and rose again, who conquered the greatest enemy of all mankind, which is death. Something that they soon would face themselves. And then what? Well, today Jesus is our high priest and he is interceding on our behalf before the Father. He is our Savior and he is our Lord. The religious leaders missed it, but my hope is that you don't. My hope is that you know Jesus for yourself, because we all face death. One day we will all stand before God, and we will all give an answer to the question, what did you do with my son, my one and only son, who came into the world to rescue not only Israel from their sin, but all nations from their sin, all peoples? What will you answer? And that's the question he's going to ask us. Today, we've been talking about the message that the apostles could not stop talking about, and it's all about the person of Jesus. The Christian faith is not just about understanding who Jesus is and understanding the message and being able to articulate it and put it together. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about knowing your own need for Jesus and allowing him to transform your life. The Christian message, the good news, is Jesus himself and acts no, part of me, 1 John 5 puts it like this. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
So it's kind of simple language there. I mean, if you have Jesus, you have life, eternal life. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. John 1.12 says, this is how you get it. Yet to all who did receive him and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you see that there's this element of faith that's required. Faith in Jesus Christ is how you get Jesus Christ, is how you have eternal life. I hope you don't miss this message today. It is by God's grace that he saves us. But it is also by God's grace that we grow and we learn and we mature and we grow up in Christ. He is our Lord, and he calls us to submit to him as his Lord. Those religious leaders would not submit to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Lord, as their Savior. Will you? And I want to close off by reading the words of the apostles right here in our text today, where they were challenging those people to believe. I want us to hear those words that we would challenge ourselves to believe. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins, by extension to all the world. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Will you obey him? That's my question for you today. And I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father, we want to obey you. We recognize the fact that we do live in a world where there's lots of sin that's out there and we can see it. It seems pretty evident. But are we aware of the sin that we have? Our own sin problem that requires a savior. Do we recognize that Jesus Christ is that savior come into the world, resurrected from the dead to conquer sin and death? And you, you alone are the one who can give us eternal life. So, Father, I would pray that that message would be true in our hearts today. And that if someone's listening at this point, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they too would obey him. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us. We have a few questions here for you to discuss. If you've got someone in your home to discuss it with, if not, maybe call a friend and talk about it. But what's your favorite part of today's story? There's lots of really cool elements there. What's your favorite part? Secondly, does the boldness of the apostles encourage you to be bold in your witness? Is there a recent story that you could share about how you were talking with someone about Jesus? And then the last one is for reflection. Is Jesus asking you to surrender something in your life to him because he's your Lord? So I want you to reflect on those questions at this time. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.